The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Today we're in the book of Hebrews. If you brought a Bible, I encourage you to open up to chapter 2. We're going to read verses 10 through 18, teach those verses today. The name of our series is Greater, Truer, Better. This is sort of the message of Hebrews, that Jesus is, is greater, truer, and better in every way. And, and we've been unpacking that for the last four weeks as we've taught through the first two chapters. Today we're going to wrap up our time in chapter 2. If you were here last week, we looked at verses 5 through 9 in the middle of chapter 2. Pastor Jeremy actually taught, and, and we learned that, 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 that what, God's, and what, God, what is God's role and what is, what is God's rule and what is man's role in the economy of God. We, we learned last week about the already, not yet. And, and if you were here last week, uh, we concluded our teaching by looking at verse 9, which is a transition verse into our text. Uh, and, and we looked at this reality that Christ's death brought life. And, and there's that phrase at the very end of verse 9. It, it says that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There's this hope that, that, that Christ's death brought life for, for us. And Jeremy concluded his teaching last week by reminding us of some really important things. And I just want to remind you of the same things today as we bridge into the next section of Scripture. We're to be encouraged as the church. We're to take heart. The world is not falling apart, even though when we watch the news, it feels like it is. Jesus is on the throne. The enemy does not win. Jesus already demonstrated the enemy's defeat. The suffering that you and I encounter is not forever. It's temporal. Eternal glory awaits us because of what Christ has done for us. Death does not win. Cancer does not win. The decay is not eternal. Death is just the beginning of an eternity where we see every last enemy put under our feet. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 last week where the Apostle Paul quotes the prophet Hosea, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And that transitions us to verse 10 today. Let's read verse 10 through the end of the chapter. For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect, Jesus, through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children he has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. As I meditated on this passage in, in the first and second chapters of, Hebrew, of Hebrews this week, I, I was chatting with the staff, and, and I saw this great um, expansive uh, separation, it seemed, between the hugeness of Jesus and, and the humble humanity of Jesus. 
I read this week that, that in chapter 1, we see some of the strongest statements in the New Testament that speak of the deity of Christ. And then in chapter 2, on the other hand, it, it contains some of the most profound verses on the humanity of Christ. So we have the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. The hugeness of Christ and the humble humanity of Christ here in these first two chapters. Chapter 1 tells us that, that Jesus is God's final word. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of majesty on high. The hugeness of Jesus in chapter 1. The deity of Jesus. We're meant to fall to our knees and behold the deity of Christ as we read chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, we read that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels and He's made of flesh and blood. In every respect, like you and me, his brothers and sisters, he suffered, he died. We see the humble humanity of Jesus. And as we celebrate the Christmas season, the incarnation, the manger in Bethlehem, we're reminded of the incarnation. In chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews point out the necessity of the incarnation. Jesus had to become human. The hugeness of God squeezed into a humble human. Look with me again at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Underline or highlight that word perfect. Here's the big idea of our teaching today. Here's what we're going to uncover as we journey through this passage. The perfect Son of God, who is perfectly God, has become the perfect Savior. That's what this text is telling us today. The perfect Son of God, who is perfectly God, has become the perfect Savior. He is the only one and the only way. Let's pray. Father, as we take a look at this passage today, would you give us eyes to see the things we need to see? God, as we look at the hugeness of Jesus and the humble humanity of Jesus, the incarnation, the suffering, the death, all of it, God, would you give us eyes to see ears to hear, hearts to understand, mouths to confess, feet to repent. God, give us the things we need to respond to the truths contained in these verses, to respond in such a way that you are glorified in us and through us. Meet us in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm 47 years old. I'm, I'm halfway through my life. I think I'm, I feel like I'm at like halftime. But then I think 47, I'm probably not going to live to 94, so maybe I'm like a couple minutes into the third quarter of my life. But you get the idea. I'm kind of at that midlife phase. I've got two adult kids. My, my youngest child's almost an adult, going to be an empty nester very soon. And when you go through halftime of life, those of you that are older, I see all your old faces out there and your gray hair. Those of you that are older, you understand what this is like. And I can learn from you, and I want to learn from you genuinely. But I was chatting with a buddy of mine yesterday or a couple days ago, a pastor friend of mine, and we're both the same age, and we were talking about how in our 20s and 30s, we were both driven guys. And just because I'm a pastor, it doesn't mean I'm not professionally driven. I've been professionally driven like most men. And I think about my 20s and 30s, and I wanted to do all the things. Maybe you can identify. There was, I had goals, goals, goals. I wanted to do all the things. There was nothing I didn't want to accomplish. I had this vision, and I was pushing hard towards it, dreams. So much I wanted to accomplish, and then I turned 40, and then 43, and then 46, and now I'm 47. And I, and I think the question is no longer about doing all the things. The question in my heart now is, Paul, am I, are you doing the right things? Because you don't have all the time in the world. You have lots of limitations. You, you weren't aware of those limitations in your naivety. 
I'm aware of my limitations now, and the question I'm asking God and others is, am I doing the right things? Am I investing in the right places? Are my dreams bigger than my immediate happiness and satisfaction? Is there a higher calling that motivates the way I conduct myself in the here and in the now? And there's something about the 40s. I mean, every, every author I appreciate talks about the 40s and this place in your midlife of being a wall or a dark night of the soul or a place of crisis, a place, a crucible that God gets, kind of gets to the core of who we are as people. And I've, I've, been, a, I've been warned of that by, by men and women who are smarter than me and who've gone before me. And I've certainly experienced that as I've journeyed through midlife. There's something about our 40s where we, where we, we come face to face with our limitations. If you're over 40, do you agree with me? Are you with me on this? There's something about your 40s where you begin to confront your limitations and, and you realize that, man, I just don't have the, the chutzpah or the gusto to power through anymore. I just don't. I, I reach down for my bootstraps and they're not there and suddenly we're stripped of self-sufficiency and we have to start dealing with the reality of loss. There's something about our midlife where we start to experience more and more losses. Our parents, the loved ones, we, we experience hard things. Limitations press in. And with these midlife considerations, for me at least, it, it causes me to reevaluate my life and my decisions and my goals and my ambitions up to this point. I have to be honest about where is my heart behind doing what I do. What is my heart motivation in doing the things that I do uh, with my children, as a dad, with my wife, as a husband, vocationally? And if I'm honest, and I know I've shared with you previously, is, is those layers begin to get peeled back and I've come to face-to-face with just the, the kind of heartbreaking reality that so much of what I've done in my life has been motivated by self, even in the name of Jesus, doing things in the name of Jesus. But really, when I begin to peel back heart motivation, I realize actually it was more about me than Jesus. And I hate that. It's just been my personal reality. Maybe that's not been yours. And I think about my life and I think about how much I've lived in, in, in the things that I've done in my life that were, that were born out of like a reaction to some neat, deeper thing going on within me. This fear of, of not belonging. This fear of not being affirmed. And so much of what I've done in my life was born out of this insecurity needing to be affirmed. And, and I look back and I see it now. I didn't see it in the moment. And so much of my life I lived in isolation because there was sin in my life I didn't want people to know about. I should know better. Why, why am I struggling with these sorts of sins? And so I, I operated in darkness and in hiddenness and didn't reveal it to God and didn't reveal it to others and lived a, a life in shackles in certain regards. Maybe, maybe you can identify, maybe you can't. And then I just, you know, as, as the losses have mounted in life, without, without my chin being lifted and without being reminded of gospel hope, it's so easy for the mounting losses in life to create a, a backbreaking burden a heaviness and a darkness in life that just feels like it overwhelms you. But by God's grace, because of the people he's put in my life and the work he's doing by his spirit and the community I've been involved in and because he is God and I am not, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more God begins to show and reveal these things, which is awesome. I realize that there is a place to belong. I don't need to seek the affirmation of others. There's affirmation to be found in Christ. I realize that, that there is very real help in the midst of the, the, the starkest of temptations, the most difficult moments, the most, the most ardent battles with sin, there is real help that God offers us. I realize that death does not have the final say. There is real hope. Now listen, if you, if you could live in light of these realities, would you want to? 
if you could take state today, you could look back over the course of your life. You could, let's just say you could go back, maybe you're not 20 yet. I'll say, go back to a, a previous era in your life. But if you're over 25 or 20, if you could go back to 18, and if you could, if you could speak to your 18-year-old self the things you know today, what would you say? And I think our text speaks to this today. Though it's got this high Christology and this beautiful picture of the incarnation and the necessity of the death and, and uh, suffering of Jesus, I think it also has a very rubber-meets-the-road practical application today. If you could go back and talk to yourself, you could say to yourself, don't worry so much about the affirmation of others. Don't, don't bend your whole life trying to find somewhere to belong. There's, there's a place for you in the kingdom. Don't, don't battle sin in isolation. Don't try to go it alone. There is real help that is available to you through Jesus. Maybe you'd say to yourself, listen, death is going to be crushing. You're going to lose people you love. It does not have the final say. Death has been overcome. Maybe you'd say those things to yourself. And so our text speaks to this. As we look at this perfect son of God who is perfectly God, who's become the perfect savior, we see that there is a real benefit here and now in the life of the believer. So let's look back at our text. Uh, let, let, let's kind of uh, orient ourselves to these verses, and then we'll journey through them, and we'll kind of make these application points along the way. First thing I want you to notice, if you look back at your passage, look back at verse 10 and look at verse 18. I want you to notice the, the beginning and the end of our text today. The bookends are the top and tail. Look at the last word of verse 10. It is the word suffering. If you're the kind of person that highlights or underlines or makes a special note, I would, I would encourage you to make a note of the word suffering. It's talking about the suffering of Jesus. And then look at the very last verse, verse 18. After the argument has been made in our passage, we see the word suffering again. For because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted. So we see, again, the humble humanity of Jesus. He suffered. Listen to what I read this week. Jesus lived as an ordinary man. There was nothing about the teacher from Nazareth to show us that he was greater than the angels. Indeed, the reverse was true, for he had undergone humiliating sufferings culminating in a felon's death. The author of Hebrews proceeds to show, however, that far from this being an objection to his greatness, this was a part of it. This was the way he would save men. He would be made like, he would be made like those he saves. So we see in the humanity of Jesus, he is suffering we see in verses 14 and 15, three times death is mentioned. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death so that you and I don't have to fear death. Pay attention to those three words. We see the, we see the humanity of Jesus and that it talks of his suffering and his death. The title of my sermon today is The Suffering and the Death of Jesus. Hebrews gives us this incredible glimpse into why the suffering and the death of Jesus was necessary. So here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down if you're a note taker. The suffering... And death of Jesus, number one, means salvation and sanctification for many. The suffering and death of Jesus means salvation and sanctification for many. I know you can go on our app and there's a digital feature where you can take these notes digitally or you can write them down or just take a mental note. So there, there, are, there, are, there are some words here in verses 10 through 13 I want you to pay attention to. Look at the beginning of verse 10. It talks about how, how Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. Circle or underline the word many. We lead, read later on in verse 10 that he's doing this for the salvation of his people. We read in verse 11 on two, on two occasions, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. So we see the, the, the salvation and the sanctification of many taking place because of the, the suffering and the death of Jesus. That word salvation is the word soteria. It's where we get the word soteriology. It's the, it's the doctrine of salvation. 
And that word, that word salvation, the, 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 the author is speaking about Jesus bringing salvation, it's deliverance. It's deliverance. It's, it's the present saved reality of the Christian. So it's what we experience right now, but it's also got a future component to it. When he came to provide salvation for us, the future part of it, it says that it's a future salvation. It's the sum benefits and blessings which the Christians, redeemed from all eternity's ills, will enjoy after the visible return of Christ from heaven in the consummated and eternal kingdom of God. So this, this salvation is a, is, a, is a holistic. It's the totality of salvation that he has secured for many. Verse 11 talks about sanctification. This word just simply means to separate from the profane, to dedicate things to God, to consecrate things to God. It's this picture of God doing a purifying work. In other words, through his suffering and death, Jesus is saving people from the curse of sin and the resulting spiritual death. Because of his suffering and death, Jesus is making people holy by his blood, molding and shaping and transforming those who belong to him. And he calls these brothers and sisters, or these, those he saves and sanctifies, he calls them brothers. That word used for brothers is a gender-neutral term. It's actually more accurate to render it brothers and sisters. All of those he comes to save and sanctify. Those of us who've come to faith in Christ, who've been born again, who are, who are journeying with Jesus as he molds us and shapes us, we are his brothers and sisters. This is a deeply relational term. Jesus is bringing many brothers and sisters to glory, many sons and daughters to glory. The suffering and death of Jesus means salvation and sanctification for many. I read this week that one of the unique, the followers of the one unique Son of God are now also called sons or sons and daughters. For they are adopted into the glory of a new humanity or a newly redeemed human family. There is a place of deep belonging in Christ. We are his brothers and sisters. We are the sons and the daughters of the Father. We share a common Father. But notice how it doesn't say that, that he came to bring all sons and daughters to glory. He's not bringing all sons and daughters to glory. Thomas Schreiner helped me think through this this week. He's a theologian, and here's what he said in his commentary. He says, a ta The tasting of death by Jesus for everyone does not lead to universalism. It does not lead to the salvation of everyone without exception, but to the salvation of those who are God's sons and daughters, those who come to him in faith. And if you remember, chapter 2 began with a warning that, that, that for, it began with a statement that salvation is available to people, and, and it came with a warning that it's possible to miss it. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 2, uh, we were warned to not neglect such a great salvation? To neglect this great salvation is to miss out on being brought to glory by Jesus as his son or his daughter, or his brother or his sister. But the picture here in, in these few verses is a deeply relational one. It's a picture of a family. It's a picture of connection. Brothers and sisters with Jesus, sharing a common father, a place to belong. And the longer I live and the longer I journey through life and I have friends and coworkers and neighbors and people that I know and family members, I just get this greater and greater sense that the world around us is hungry. I, I see people going through extreme lengths to find acceptance and affirmation and belonging. It's incredible what people will do. When I was a youth pastor, I might, I might have mentioned to you in the past, I, I learned very early on that if you, would, if you love a child like genuinely just love them, affirm them, you're present in their lives, you show up. Even if you speak hard truths, if you genuinely love a child, they will, they will drive 100 miles to be at a youth group. They'll walk across 
miles of broken glass with bare feet if they know they can be loved on the other side. One of our most fundamental needs as human beings is the need to be loved, to belong. And I just think of the heartbreaking journey so many people take down these dead-end roads trying to find acceptance and affirmation and belonging. And there's so many, so many liars in this world, so many worldviews and cult-like places where you can find all the lies your itching ears want to hear, and people run down these roads of, of searching for belonging and affirmation only to find when they're all said and done that, they, that they've got nothing and their hearts are broken. I believe one of the reasons the, the suicidal ideation rate is so high among the transgender community is because they go through unbelievable lengths, these men and women, to, to, to address this deep longing of their soul. There's something that's missing. There's a longing in their soul. It's an identity issue. And so think of the unbelievable lengths, the, the ostrac- the being ostracized by family, the, the, the surgeries, the hormone treatments, all the things someone will go through deeply trying to find a place of belonging, a place to have that longing in their soul satisfied. They walk down this, this journey for miles and miles, days and days, years and years, to get to the end of that journey to realize I've done all this. I've done all this, and my heart is broken. I don't have a place of belonging. I'm utterly alone. What a hopeless place to be. It may not be that extreme for all of us, but it is so easy to follow the lies of this world. We have belonging with him. He sanctifies us. He saves us, that we might be his brothers and sisters. And even though we're brothers and sisters with Jesus, which is a hard language for us to wrap our mind around, that's the language the scripture uses, he he is still set apart. Let's not forget that. Look at what verse 10 says about Jesus. It calls him the founder of salvation. That word founder, it's also translated, he is the author, he is the captain, he is the pioneer of salvation. This word is used in one other place in Hebrew. It's used in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when the author of Hebrews sort of gets to the end of his argument, and he's making his final appeal to his audience. He says this, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. He says, Therefore, after everything I've just said, Jesus is greater, truer, better. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that he has set before us, looking to Jesus the founder, the captain, the pioneer, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and it's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus became like us, and he's gone before us, and he's made a way for us to become more like him. There are many ways in which we are like Christ, We share in flesh and blood, the text says in verse 14. We both suffer. We have the same Father. But there are many ways we are not like Jesus that sets him apart. Only Jesus is the founder, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter of salvation. Only Jesus sanctifies. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil. Only Jesus delivers you and me from the fear of death. Only Jesus is the perfect high priest. Only Jesus makes propitiation for our sins. The perfect Son of God, who is perfectly God, has become the perfect Savior. And as the founder and the pioneer of our salvation, we are to fix our eyes and anchor our hope in him. This is the argument the author of Hebrews is making again and again and again. He supports his argument by quoting Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. 
talking about this common humanity, and he ascribes the the words of the psalmist and the words of the prophet Isaiah to the very words of Jesus. And then we see, finally, there's this one little spot that, that, that can be a little confusing for us, and I think it I think it's worth taking an aside, making a note of. It says in in verse 10 that that God should make Jesus the founder of their salvation perfect. This picture of Jesus being made perfect, that's hard for us. What's that mean? Does it mean Jesus wasn't perfect? Does it mean that he wasn't divine? Does it mean that Jesus was was sinful? As Jeremy reminded me this week, you know, if you look at the early church ecumenical councils in the the early uh, years of the church, the three major ecumenical councils all dealt with the humanity of Jesus because it's so easy for us to get caught up in heresy here and get our thinking wrong when it comes to the humanity of Jesus. Thomas Schreiner, a theologian, helped me think through what what is being said here about Jesus being made perfect. And I think it's just to keep us out of confusion, I'm going to just share with you some, some things that I learned this week. We know that Jesus is not sinful. We know that he's sinless. All of scripture confirms that, but also in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, chapter 7 verses 26 and 27 affirm that Jesus was perfected morally. The word perfect that's being used here, it reminds us of the way in which the word perfect is used in the Old Testament of the consecration of priests to indicate that they were qualified for office. So here's what, here's what Schreiner says. Jesus is perfected Jesus is being made perfect in that he reaches God's intended goal by his obedience, by his suffering, his death, and his exaltation. Perfection, then, is best characterized as vocational, so that like the priests in the Old Testament, Jesus is qualified for his office as priest king. Even though perfection is not Jesus' moral improvement, it has an experiential and and existential dimension. And in that sense, it includes the obedience and sufferings that qualify Jesus to serve as a high priest. It's, it can be a confusing text. The idea here is that Jesus was being prepared to be the priest king. So the first thing we see is we see the suffering and the death of Jesus. It means salvation and sanctification for many. Jesus saves and he sanctifies many into the family of God. The second thing we see is that the suffering and the death of Jesus means the fear of death has been put to death. This is the second thing the author unpacks in verses 14 and 15. The suffering and the death of Jesus means that the fear of death has been put to death. Look at verse 15. In speaking of Jesus, he will deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Pay attention to those words. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 15. He said, Jesus destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life scared to death of death. Look at the two words that are used to describe the, the, the action of Jesus in, in, in defeating death. We see, we see that he destroyed and he delivered. Destroy is a word we see in verse 14. Deliver is a word we see in verse 15. Jesus is described as the destroyer and the deliverer. Which means that through his death, he destroyed the devil who has the power of death. And through his death, he delivers you and me from the fear of death. Man. He is a destroyer and a deliverer. I was thinking that'd be a really cool idea for a tattoo. And then I realized I'm 47 and that's lame to think about tattoos at my age. But then I realized I'm in my midlife crisis, so I can go ahead and get a tattoo and no one will judge me. Just kidding. He is a destroyer and a deliverer. The suffering and the death of Jesus means the fear of death has been put to death. We no longer need to fear death. We've been, we've been given freedom from the fear of death. Verse 9 tells us that he has tasted death for everyone. 
Our text tells us that through his death, Christ destroyed death and brought deliverance to sinners who fear death. I love that statement. I don't know where I got it. I don't think it's mine. I found that through his death, Christ destroyed death and brought deliverance to sinners who fear death. And we looked at chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians last week and the language there about, about the, the death-defeating victory of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57, we read, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. We need not fear death. If you're in Christ, we, we, we need not fear death. So why do we fear it? Why are, why are people afraid of death? I, I, I think in part, and this is a legitimate concern, I think some, some, some of us fear death because we're associated with the pain. We're, fear, we're, we're afraid of the pain associated with death. You know, my mother, she's been fighting cancer for a couple of years, and her, her latest uh, uh, CT scan revealed some masses in her, along, her, along her trachea. And her father died of throat cancer, and she had to watch that painful death and that miserable death of her father many years ago. And so my mom, though she's assured of her salvation and she's trusting in Christ and she is, she's utterly confident she's going to be with Jesus when her earthly life ends, she's concerned about what this, these tumors might mean on her neck. And so she's asked us as a family to pray that it wouldn't be painful, that her airway wouldn't get closed. I get that. I think it's, it's, it's appropriate to have that kind of fear, to ask God for strength. But I, as I think about what, what's being said here in verse 15, I this, de- this fear of death here is not, not about pain. It's, it's a fear about what comes after death. It's a fear that is rooted in uncertainty. It's a fear that may maybe even be rooted in accountability. If there's, a, if, there's a, if there's a moment of reckoning upon death. You know, in my line of work, I, I am privileged and honored with the opportunity on many occasions to sit with the dying. In, in my life, I've sat alongside the dying who were paralyzed with the fear of death as they approached death. It's horrendous to witness that. And I know some of you probably have. When there is not assurance, and there's uncertainty, and there's fear of accountability, and death is imminent, it's, it's a horrendous thing to watch. I've also been so blessed so many times with the death of a saint. It's glorious to watch a saint someone filled with hope to watch them approach their final moments. It's a ministry. It's beautiful. I was chatting with Kathy a couple weeks ago. I was reading in a a book, Henry Nouwen book, where he said, uh, one of the most significant things, maybe the most significant thing we may ever do as people is die before our children. One of the most important things, one of the most important ministries you and I may ever have as parents is is to die filled with hope in the presence of our kids. Psalm 116 tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, I want to be clear. For those who have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, your fear of death is appropriate. Satan delights to hold you in bondage to the fear of death. But look at our text, because that's not where it ends. Through his death, Christ destroyed death and brought deliverance to sinners who fear death. You need not fear death because of Christ. Christ disarms the devil from his one weapon, which is the fear of death. He redeems us from Satan's power. We're delivered from the only thing that makes death fearful. And when we're delivered from that, when we have a hope because of the salvation of Christ, 
we approach our final days and there's not doom or dread or horror. There's comfort and hope and peace. And I know there's some of you in here who have watched a saint pass. It is incredible to watch a saint pass. I have a friend in Milwaukee whose dad was a pastor and a very faithful uh, minister for years and years and years. And, and he, he got uh, pancreatic cancer and died rather quickly a couple months ago. And his very final words, which have been immortalized now in Milwaukee, uh, for those who knew uh, Pastor Murphy, his final words were, wow, wow, it's all true. All the love, incredible. And then he died. Can you imagine the gift that that has been to his family? Incredible. So the suffering and the death of Jesus, it means salvation and sanctification for many. It means fear of death has been put to death. Why? Well, because the perfect Son of God, who is perfectly God, has become the perfect Savior. That's why. This takes us to our final point. The suffering and the death of Jesus, it means real help right now. The suffering and the death of Jesus, it means real help Right now, real, tangible help that meets us where we are. For surely, it says in verse 16, it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 18, for it is because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are the offspring of Abraham. Now, the original audience of the book of Hebrews were, 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 were Jewish men and women, so they, they, would have, they would have found deep connection with this picture of being the offspring of Abraham, but the reality is, since the church is the heir of the Old Testament promises in Christ, we are to understand this expression, this, this offspring of Abraham expression, to, to refer to all of us who are of the community of faith. That's us. We are the offspring of Abraham. He helps us. The author is saying that real help is available to the believer right now, to those who are in the community of faith. And it's precisely because of the fact that Jesus Christ became flesh and blood, because he, he suffered and died, it's because he has forever dealt with, the, dealt with the problem of sin that there's now nothing that blocks us from getting help from him. He sanctifies us, he saves us, he helps us. In other words, because of the suffering of the death of Jesus in your place on the cross, this took place in the past, you and I now have help in the present. Look at the language of verse 18. For because he himself has suffered, that's past tense, he has suffered when tempted, he is able, that's present tense, to help those who are being tempted. Our faith is one that, that is rooted in the work of Christ on the cross. Because he has suffered and died in our place, he is now in the present able to help us. It's not a generic help. It's not a, a generalized help. This is a very specific, very pointed, very personalized help that he comes to each and every one of us with. It's, it's a help that is rooted in his empathy. Remember, he is not some high priest that's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but he's not sinned. It tells us that in Hebrews 4.15. So he, he empathizes with us. He's been tempted like you and I have been tempted, but he just hasn't sinned. He's confronted death. There's nothing that you and I encounter as humans that Jesus hasn't encountered, and he is able to help us. And he's able to help us in the present because he's not dead. That's the implication here. He's alive today. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's made purification for our sins. He's given us the Spirit. He's able to help. We just have to ask. Now my guess is if you and I were to sit down and have a cup of coffee, if we were to, to go for a walk up on Roxiana, just get to know each other a little bit, and my guess is if we started to kind of press in and get past the platitudes and pleasantries, we started talking about the real stuff of life, my guess is that every single one of you has a pinch point in life right now, an area in life where there's a habitual sin, there's a recurring problem, there's a difficulty you're facing, there's a challenge in your life, and, 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 and 
Maybe you are tempted like I have been tempted in my life to hide that from God, to hide that from others, to resolve to deal with it on my own. What if we were to fall to our knees figuratively and literally unclench control of our lives and to beg God for his help in the name of Jesus? To give it over to him fully. Ask him for his divine help. Maybe his help will come in ways we didn't expect, but he's a God who has promised to help us. And so, the suffering and the death of Jesus, it means three things, at least three things in this text. Salvation and sanctification for many. It means the fear of death has been put to death. And it means real help right now for the believer. Made possible because the perfect Son of God, who is perfectly God, became the perfect Savior. So we see the hugeness and the humble humanity of Jesus in these first two chapters. I preached Hebrews in 2015. I actually preached this exact text, like in the fall of 2015. And I went back and I listened to what I taught, and it wasn't great. <laughs> it was not great. And I, my guess is there'll be a day in the future when I'll be listening to this podcast in 10 or 12 years, next time I'm teaching this text, and I'll listen to what I'm saying today, and I'll say, boy, Paul, that wasn't great. You didn't get it. There's so much more you missed. There's just so much truth and beauty contained in these verses. There's an incredibly high view of Christ in the first two chapters of Hebrews. Every word in these chapters is pregnant with meaning and purpose and truth. And the right response, and my response has been, honestly, in many cases, is I just meditate on what's happening and who Jesus is. It's just, it's just awe. It's like, I don't even know if I can understand that God, but it's like I want to worship you because it's incredible. And yet, we see the hugeness of Jesus. And, and when we look at the, the humble humanity of Jesus and we look at the fullness of the incarnation, there are profoundly practical realities for us today. Profoundly. Worship is an awesome application. If the application of today is that you just fall on your knees and say, oh my God, you're incredible, and you worship Jesus, that's a great, that's a great conclusion. <clears throat> but there are profoundly practical realities for today. There is a place of belonging, church. Just, just th consider that. You are a brother or a sister of Jesus. We share a common father with Jesus as sons and daughters. We are in the family of God. There is acceptance and belonging contained in that. And inherent in that reality is our salvation. It is that our sins have been forgiven. Forgiveness is available to you. Salvation is available to you. A place of belonging is available to you. Those, those, those dead-end roads, those little mini-pursuits that we're, we're searching for belonging or acceptance or affirmation that cause us to compromise our faith, compromise our morals, turn our backs on our family, get our priorities upside down, whether it's pursuing career or whatever it may be, the, the thing our hearts are longing for that drive us down those dead-end paths is available to us. Salvation and forgiveness and belonging in the family of God. That is so practical. That is so practical. Meditate on that truth. And not only that, our text tells us that he is a source of real help right now, in the present. He helps us. He makes himself known to us. He journeys with us. He empowers us, emboldens us, gives us wisdom, helps us make the right steps, make the right decisions, confess and repent. Real help. You're not to do this life of faith alone. Certainly we have the body of Christ around us, but we have the help of Jesus Christ himself. You have real help that is so practical. And as the, as the losses of life mount up, 
And as you and I are tempted to, to take our eyes off the hope that he has defeated death, as we're tempted to kind of just lower our eyes from that truth and be overwhelmed by the darkness of death that exists in our world, as we take each new hit with each new loss, there is freedom from the fear of death. That's an incredible, incredible truth. There is freedom, true freedom from the fear of death. Not only just freedom, but, but a truth that when we, when, it, when, it, when, it envelop, when, it, when we accept it and receive it and meditate on it and live in that truth, not only is there freedom from the fear of death, there's actual hope. I mean, there's a day the scriptures talk about when we are in the presence of Jesus and every single tear of our, of our eyes is wiped. Think of the tears that you and I have cried over the course of our lives. The psalmist says that he captures each one of our tears in his bottle. God does, and he records each one in his book. Think of the tears that you and I have cried, the very real, very honest tears, the, the heartbreaking tears that don't have resolution yet in our lives. Think of the losses that you've encountered that you can't yet make full sense of. The, the heartbreak, the challenge, the betrayal, whatever it may be. Think of, there's a day when we stand in the presence of Jesus and he redeems all of it. He restores all of it, every single thing. He wipes every single tear. He makes all things new. There's no more sorrow, suffering, crying, or pain. That is a real hope. We do not need to fear death. How practical are these things? We have a place of belonging. We have a source of help. We have freedom from the fear of death. Why? Because the perfect Son of God, who is perfectly God, has become our perfect Savior. Amen? Now listen, as you came in today, my hope is that you grabbed a communion cup. Before we can wrap up our teaching on this text, we have to meditate on verse 17. Verse 17 is one of the most, as I've learned this week, really, one of the most profound and pregnant texts in all of Scripture. So as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, let's, let's draw our attention for the last few moments we have together to verse 17. I heard one theologian say that, the, that verse 17 is the gospel. And if you remove just one word, you'll no longer have the gospel. Let's, let me read this verse to you again. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. Jesus had to become human flesh. Why? Well, because it's only in human flesh that Jesus has been made High priest, the perfect high priest. Only as one who is fully God and fully man could Jesus become a faithful and merciful high priest for us. And he has made propitiation for the sins. That's a word we don't use often in our, in our, in our English language. In fact, I found out this week it's a, it's a word that many fought to have removed from the biblical language. It's been interpreted in other, in other places as atonement or sacrifice or reconciliation. But the word propitiation is an important word and it needs to stay in our Bibles. The word means more generally it, it carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, this word does. It carries the idea of appeasement or satisfaction specifically toward God. It's a two-part act that involves, that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to that person. It's where justice and redemption are, where justice is satisfied and redemption is completed. More specifically, as we talk about Jesus and his propitiation on our behalf, it means that he has averted the wrath of God by offering himself as a gift. What God requires, God himself provides in Christ. The justice of God requires a sacrifice. And so God himself required that sacrifice in Christ. He requires it and he provides it himself. 
I read this week that he is, by his own choice and for our sake, priest and sacrifice, mediator and gift. This is Jesus. Jesus did it all. By suffering death, Jesus broke the power of death and reconciled to God those who feared death constantly. This is what verse 17 is telling us. So as we prepare to approach communion table, as we consider the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus, we turn our attention to the cross of Christ, and it's at the cross where we see the love and the justice of God. Why did, why did Jesus shed his blood on the cross? Why, why, why did Jesus choose to go to the cross? Well, love, John three sixteen tells us that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But it wasn't only God's love that drove Christ to the cross. It was also justice. The wages of sin is death. We have all sinned. There needed to be a death. There needed to be a punitive, just completion. The justice of God required that God find a way that the penalty due for our sins would be paid. Somebody had to die. Someone's blood had to be shed. It was either ours or his. The shedding of blood had been necessary. I think of the original audience, these Jews, these Hebrews wanted to go back to the sacrificial system. They knew that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it relied on the blood of goats and bulls and lambs. And the priests of the priestly order of the Levites, they would continually do the common priestly work in the temple. But, but once a year, that high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies on the day of atonement with the blood of an unblemished animal, and he would meet with God. He'd do the service of a priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. This was his priestly service, and he'd do it on behalf of the people. He would sprinkle the blood of an unblemished animal on the mercy seat, and for a time in the Old Testament covenant, he would make atonement for the sins of the people. This was his priestly service done on behalf of the people of God. But then year after year, on the Day of Atonement, this act of propitiation would have to take place again and again and again. For a moment, propitiation that took place in the Old Covenant, it would change God's disposition towards his people from wrath to mercy on the basis of this service of the high priest, sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. But as Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So then Jesus, the perfect high priest, came. His body broken, his blood shed. He offered the perfect sacrifice himself once and for all. Jesus didn't atone for sins for a time. He atoned for sins for all of humanity. He appeased the wrath of God and made a way for us to be forgiven. In Christ, justice is satisfied and redemption is complete. Christ became human to help humans. He didn't come as an angel. He came as a human. He became a merciful and faithful high priest, that we might be saved and sanctified, that we might become the family of God, that we might experience real help today, that we might put the fear of death to death. The perfect Son of God, who is perfectly God, has become the perfect Savior. Let me pray to prepare our hearts to receive communion. Father, I'm asking today that as we approach the table, God, I'm asking that you would prepare our hearts, God. God, we, want to, we don't want to do this in an unworthy manner. God, we want to to approach the table in a worthy manner, God. We want to approach the table, God, as 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 a statement of our faith, as an act of worship, as a declaration of dependence upon you as we take this bread that symbolizes the broken body of of Jesus, as we take this cup that 
that symbolizes the, the shed blood of Jesus as we take these elements as the body of Christ today. God, we want it to be an act of worship. God, we want it to reorient our hearts and minds to your ways. We want our lives to align with, with what you desire for our lives to align with. And so God, do a work in us right now that we might not take these elements in an unworthy manner. God, prepare our hearts and minds in this moment to receive communion. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.